Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Welcome back to the pod, Blacklisted by God, the talk that's got Jesus concerned about his flock, that is Seven Heads, Ten Horns, the internet's only podcast, History of the Devil. I'm here with my partner in heresy, Travis Stevens. Travis, how are you this fine October evening? I'm just so excited, not only about this episode, but about our upcoming second ever Halloween special. I mean, can you get over it? No, the answer is you cannot. You are for sure. And I feel like this episode's kind of adjacent to that in that we're talking about horror media television. Uh, It's not like a scary movie, but it's it's kind of like a long scary movie, I guess. Yeah, the degree to which this is scary is something we should talk about because Carrie, my partner, definitely asked me, "Wait." is this horror or not? And so we need to debate that at some point later. In the, yeah, for in the sure. Uh, so the show we're talking about is Midnight Mass, which uh, for I feel like we are always like a few thousand years out of date in terms of like the hottest takes. We're talking about like things in the, yes. the third century, the fourth century, that kind of thing. Um, so to be doing something that came out that dropped like a week and a half ago is unusual <laughs> for our brand. Um, so yeah, we're talking about this show, uh, Midnight Mass. Why did we pick this show? There, there's so many stupid shows on Netflix we could have picked or any other thing. Why did we pick this one, Travis? What, like, what, what called out to you about Midnight Mass? Okay, that is a great question. Why this show of all shows? For me, it was sort of coming at me from multiple directions. So I have a friend who's really into horror and she was like, oh, do you know about this show? But then Netflix got me, right? So the, the like suggestions for you. And I saw this image of a priest, but it looked like it was going to be a scary show of some kind. And that's when I was like, wait, is this gonna be like a murder mystery? Like, cause you know, I love my British murder mysteries. I said, definitely not. This is my like research for the podcast algorithm that was coming up. And also, like, the guy, the priest that's in this illustration, this cup, this ad for the show, I mean, he's not handsome, but he's church handsome, or what we might term <laughs> chansome, which is, like, just a wonderful word. I've never heard the abbreviation, but I think we should make that a thing, chansome. Uh, it's a lower standard, let's be honest, because, like, who even goes to church other than me? basically no one. Um, so <laughs> Chansom is like, oh, well, he's handsome, you know, for people who go to church. It's a select audience. Um, so excuse, you know, older. Uh, so, <laughs> so anyway, there's this guy. And I think the degree of his attractiveness is not the, is, is in some sense actually quite important to the show and how it works because he has this per- particular kind of charisma that the plot kind of hangs on. It wouldn't work if he were... Um, I would argue if he were, of course, not charismatic at all, but also if he were just downright sexy, that would be a problem, I think, for this show. It would be too yeah. distracting, if you will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the the the, the chansome man, that, that chansome man, that Smith's classic we're talking about, is uh, Hamish Linklater. Father Paul Hill, a.k.a. Father John Pruitt. But we'll get into all that later. I'm looking at the filmography here. What is this guy in? He's in a bunch of stuff. He's got a face that looks familiar to me, but I couldn't tell you if I had seen anything with him in it before. I'm looking at titles like 2012's Lola Versus. No effing idea. Redemption Trail. The Angriest Man in Brooklyn. Is that him? I don't know. Mm. Magic in the Moonlight television he was on a dragnet remake fascinating um the show legion that sounds like it's probably relevant to our (laughs) topics um 
gaslit, midnight mass, of course, is what we're talking about. Tell me your secrets so that we have this priestly confessional mm. mode of existence coming through here. So, yeah, um, I think I, I think I think I get it. But yeah, so this man, this this man is chansom. He's church handsome. So can you break that down for me for a second? Like what, when you say this, like, what are, what are you talking, what are we talking about? Okay, so like imagine the little old ladies in the pews and in comes the young priest. And by young, I definitely mean like younger than 60. So again, <laughs> just the crowd that we're talking about. And so he is the one that they wish that their sons had turned into, right? He's the, you know, he's the goody two shoes. He's the he's the good Catholic boy who grew up and did the right thing. Like that's that's who we're talking about. And Chansom is the ability. Those little old ladies will show up every week. They'll go to like even daily mass to see him because they're that excited about him. Is it because they want to date him? No, 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 no. It's it's less precise than that. But he draws people in and who goes to little churches. You know, the little old ladies bless them. I love them. Um, I am one of them also so so, <laughs> so you, you're, like, love. you're one of the primary consumers of, of the chansom offering exactly yeah. uh, yes the daily chansom offering yes. got it got it um excellent yeah for me uh the the midnight mass actually having grown up catholic it had a sort of mystery a romance about it and i i wasn't a goth but i was definitely into horror stuff growing up and so the idea of combining this mass where like I'm lugging a candle around in the middle of the night to uh, a group of parishioners, maybe half of whom are asleep. Don't know um, that combined with horror themes, like really seemed like an intuitive combination. And so I, you know, uh, I had to devote myself to spending 72 hours mainlining this content into my body. You're welcome. So that's what You're welcome, Klaus. Yeah. I feel, yeah. I feel yeah. responsible for that. So yeah. Yeah. Well, you you told me about it and my my partner told me about it too. So we we got I was getting it from different angles. The universe was just like Klaus get ready to go to the chance of this midnight mass you've mm, been to in mm, your entire life. Yes. Got it. Okay, yeah. so so All right, so yeah, like some background maybe. Like can you tell us a little bit about like who made this this thing? Yeah, no problem. <laughs> like, so there's this guy Mike Flanagan. And the series began as something of a passion project for him. He's the director of the film, of the film, listen to me. He's the director of the series. He had pitched it as a show since going back all the way to 2014 and nobody was picking up what he was putting down. However, in the same span of time, he saw a lot of successes with some of his films. So maybe you've heard of Absentia, Oculus, there's one about a Ouija board, the series, <laughs> The Haunting of Hill House. Oh, I didn't know he did that. Okay, I definitely watched part of that. And, the, and then The Haunting of Bly House. Yeah, but I read Haunting of Hill House, so I have like, yeah, anyway. It's, yeah, anyway. So yeah, some thrillers, some horror films. I've always, I've been curious about Oculus, about a creepy ass mirror. Mm. Um, I'm just, I can only do so much of this family horror yeah. subgenre yeah. where it's all about these like traumatic family things. Mm. Like, I'm like, I get that that's sort of part of the bread and butter of the horror genre. You know, we're talking about like Rosemary's Baby, mm-hmm. Family Gone Wrong, yeah. uh, Exorcism, yeah. some family ish, big time. Um, but I can't, yeah. we, we did Hereditary last year. I can only twist that knife so many times. Yeah, for me, it's, it's a little too on the nose in that like family dynamics and trauma are not what I'm going that not where I want to spend my time when I go to horror. I'm actually there for escape and that feels like it's the opposite of escape. Like who doesn't have some, you know, shade of that, whether it's directly or indirectly through the people who are around you. Um, It's, yeah, especially, I'm going to just say it, like during the pandemic, horror has this appeal to me because I'm like, guess what? It could be worse. There could be a serial killer after me in my own home. And suddenly I feel better about, you know, the meager, the minor inconveniences of, of my own life. So that's where I stand. I'm with you on this, like, let's limit our yeah. family horror. And I do like that that term, by the way. I think it works. Yeah, I don't know if it's a if it's a actual subgenre, but it seems to be really a preoccupation of, of the last five years, 10 years of horror films. 
Uh, it's always been there. It's you have like the the little girl zombie in Night of the Living Dead, like killing her mother or what. You know, there, it's always there. But like, it's really as you say, it has so much to do with trauma in these latest iterations. Mm-hmm. And right, you know, all filled up on that over here, guys. <laughs> I don't need it. <laughs> like, Thank you. Thank you. Um, anyway, yeah. Um, but yeah, I like this idea like about horror during the pandemic. Like, I think. For me, ideally, horror is this genre where, yeah, it's it's an experience. It 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 change it like I don't know if it changes you. That sounds like trite and dumb, but like it, it you go through you undergo something. Um, and I, I appreciate the sort of experiential quality of the whole thing. Well, I like that you get taken out of yourself in a certain sense, right? It's not and not in the way that you do for a kind of, you know grand epic narrative or a rom-com or what have you or or comedy that takes you out of yourself in a different way horror scares you out of yourself and that can be such a relief i think and for me and this is a why also this show was appealing it's also about a gothic atmosphere Mm -hmm. which i find really appealing i think like this the kinds of landscapes and moods um that these these sorts of genre this this genre creates and depends upon going back to like uh, Sherlock Holmesy kind of stuff and other, other kinds of Victorian and then like early, early film uh, Dracula, Todd Browning's Dracula and, and, and these sorts of things. Like, I don't know, this is like a lot of like sort of my stock images of how to deal with like evil as a young person. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that's, it's, it's, it's important for me for that reason, for sure. So what's, Let's talk a little bit about like so like yeah to be clear we're gonna spoil this show yeah so if you haven't watched Midnight Mass go watch it first if you have Netflix it's Netflix is probably trying to like jab this thing into your brain mm-hmm. like a like uh, like the assassins of Leon Trotsky with an ice pick like they're mm-hmm. they're it's right there they're trying to get you so yeah maybe check that out if you if you don't care about sometimes I don't care about spoilers I'm like I'm ever gonna watch this damn thing just tell me all about it I don't care it's more entertaining to hear my favorite podcasts that talk about film like uh, like I don't know uh, live at the death factory I, you're, never, you're never supposed to talk about other people's podcasts on your show but I don't, I don't care um, I like that one uh, sometimes I'm like you guys talk about it so I don't have to watch it Right. But in this case, if you want to watch it, go watch it. It's yeah. Cool. If it's not your um, genre, then it might be fine to skip it and just listen to all of the spoilers and delight in our take on the show. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. so, yeah, like, so let's talk about the characters. Who Who is in this show, Travis? Like, who do we meet in over the course of this show? Well, the first character who is quite important is, of course, Matt Saracen, the quarterback of the Dillon Panthers. I mean... Sorry for you, Friday Night Lights <laughs> fans, but like literally I have seen him in nothing else before and happened to just start that series right as I was starting this one. So weird. This is providential. The algorithm. Providential. Is it yeah. the universe? Is it providence? Or is it the algorithm? Or are they, are they all one ultimately? All of the above. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the actor's name is actually uh, Zach Guilford and he plays Riley Flynn. He is a finance bro, yes he is, who kills a young woman in a drunk driving accident. He'd grown up as the ideal altar boy, but he, you know, goes out, goes off the island, right? The island is really important. He's too sophisticated for the sophisticated for this, like, this one-horse town uh, that's... I don't know. Did it feel East Coasty to you? I couldn't tell where it was at all, really. Uh, I know. I, I I have this. I have this in the notes too. Like I, I had. I have no idea where this is supposed to take place. Yeah. Yeah. And I there was like one person. I'm guessing random, East Coast. Yeah. Everyone has an Irish last name, so I'm like I'm guessing East Coast. Yeah. But I don't know. No, I think that's right. There was there's there are a lot of Irish last names. There's there was one random woman with a Southern accent, and then everyone else was sort of nondescript. So I just. We're gonna yeah, go with don't that. come to this show for realism, Do not. folks, because it's not here oh for my you. God. No. Yeah. Um, so anyway, back to Riley Flynn. He kills a young woman in a drunk driving accident very early in the show. And when he gets through his prison bid, he goes back to his hometown, Crockett Island, a.k.a. the Crockpot. One thing we do know about this island, Crockett Island, is that 
The reason millionaires aren't buying it all up and turning it into beachfront condos is that there was a bad oil spill that impacted the local fishing economy. Briley's father is a fisherman and his kid brother, Warren, helps out on the boat. And Warren is also an altar boy, just as Riley is a jaded ex-altar boy and atheist or mm, agnostic with an atheist bent is how I might talk about his yeah, spirituality. Yeah, I don't know if he's a rationalist. He has, he has qualms that are pretty reasonable about providence, and he seems to not really be too uh, convinced about the immortality of the human soul. Yeah, but he's really Which, he got he got all mystical about brain electricity in a way that made me like ugh, it felt like late night inside a frat house like after all of the chaos is over or wait what was the thing you lived in in college it wasn't a frat house the rugby house the rugby yeah. house after the concussion after the concussion wears off yes. this is the kind of thing that comes to you yeah yeah it yeah. seemed like because you know a you know the electricity in your brains you know as it's coming back. Right. You, you're talking about it and maybe there's a there's a New Yorker short story about this where like some guy is like a wisecracking film critic. And he, he like keeps like making fun of the bank robbers who are pulling this heist and then they just shoot him in the head. And like he was miserable before he got shot in the head. But then he's really happy as he like relives his entire life in like nanoseconds. So they kind of I think I, I'll maybe if I can pull it together, we'll we'll put the, the name of that short story in the notes for the episode. But it was re it was heavily reminiscent of that concept. Yeah, and the, Just and a lot of the literature on near death experience, right, felt like it was being referenced in certain ways, but that certainly was more specific around the kind of brain chemistry and yeah. the like flat life flashing before your eyes in this very particular way. But let's yeah, get yeah, back yeah. to the characters, yeah. Yeah, the and I think the way to the characters are a good way to understand the plot. I think they're supposed to be it's supposed to be character driven. Whether it successfully is is another mm, question. I would <laughs> but, say yeah. no, but yes. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, also, was <laughs> no there a protagonist, or is it like supposed to be an ensemble cast? It felt right in between those two, uncomfortably. So. It was. It, it was not decided. The, no. sh the show did not decide what that On so many things, really. So many things. But let's yeah. let's continue on with Aaron Green, who was played by played by Kate Siegel. And that's Yeah, so yeah. right, yeah. So Kate Siegel, she also looks very familiar. Yes. Um like uh, like Father Pruitt. Uh, she's actually the director producer's uh, spouse. I swear I've seen her in something else, I do not know. Um, she is Matt Saracen's, uh, like college, not college, high school. That's that's the place they were. High school sweetheart. I can't believe they're at, like they say at the beginning that the, the, the population of this island's like 150 people. How was there a high school anyway? Yeah. They kind of pretend that you could have 100 people on an island and then have a fully functioning society. I think not it was to supposed me. to be like a common school. Was the there was a school and high school seems yeah like like a stretch. I don't even think they would have had a school, frankly, but that's, yeah, that's my thought too. But yeah. so she like Matt Saracen, AKA Riley Flynn, AKA Zach Guilford has returned to the crock pot. Right. Uh, right. Re from a returning from a, a youth well spent. I don't know. Uh, she had what seems to have been a not very supportive slash abusive partner. She is pregnant uh, she explains that her pregnancy is what got her out of this relationship. She returns from being an actress. Then she is welcomed by the crockpot as the new high school teacher <laughs> there. Cool. If that's how <laughs> certification works. You don't need to yeah. get emergency You're certification good. or just life experience. Pay Bard College a lot of money no. to do it. You no, know, it's, it's just this right there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so from the moment our boy, the JV quarterback, sets foot on the island, she is like, <laughs> like she has like the wily e. coyote like her eyes just like pop open oh, yeah. like she's, she's all over that i don't and i don't <laughs> she, like honestly i mean of course he's very very handsome i'm gonna say she's in a different league like she is wildly attractive to me uh yeah there is a gap okay there. i just uh, want to <laughs> i wanted to confirm that with you i mean like he's got a really pretty face but like he shaved his head and like the hair was a better look for him, I'm going to say. And the way that she they dress like him makes him look very gaunt. She, 
Yeah, he does look. He does not look like he's living his best self, no. which which makes sense. Which makes right. sense. Yeah, her she has like very beautiful eyes that look so intense that she could do like telekinesis with them. Yes, like she like really in, yeah. So anyway, yeah. so they start to reacquaint themselves with each other. So that's like an important dynamic of the plot is their 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 sort of developing relationship and their very long chats about life, the universe, and everything. Right. Yeah. Um. She has, so she's pregnant and her doctor and friend on the Crockpot Island, the Island of Croc, is Annabeth Gish, who is also taking care of her elderly mother, who seems to be afflicted with Alzheimer's or some other kind of memory degeneracy condition. Um, so yeah, that's like an important point. Uh, finally, we have the mysterious, aforementioned, chansome, charismatic Catholic priest, Father Paul, uh, who comes to town around the same time Matt Saracen is back. And Father Paul is there to fill in for, uh, I believe it's St. Patrick's is the church. St. Patrick's very ancient Monsignor Pruitt who has been delayed on his quest to the Holy Land. And Father Paul is reporting that uh, Monsignor Pruitt needs to rest after after the intense experience. I don't know. He's sick. I don't know. It's, it's a little nebulous. Let's be serious here. That is absolutely right. The story is just insufficient to why the Monsignor never came back. Um, but that's intentional, right? Uh, to put things as succinctly as possible, the father, the good, the good father, Paul, is definitely not who he appears to be. But he's doing a driving business at St. Patrick's. He's charismatic. People are starting to show up to church. More people. It's not just little old ladies anymore. The people who are devout and regularly partake of the Eucharist, especially the wine, take note of that, are healed hmm. that start these funny things start happening klaus they start being healed of tell me tell me more about this yeah here. well the mayor's daughter lisa who was at the beginning of the show a paraplegic um she starts well actually it's not gradual she just stands up one day should i give that away now? we should talk about this what did you think about this scene because there's yeah. a scene where okay uh lisa um is in a wheelchair and she's supposed to take communion. There's a lot of communion in the show. Let me tell you. Yeah. The blood and the bread, the new covenant. It's all, it's there again and again and again. Um, so she's supposed to receive the elements of the sacraments. And what is what is Father Paul pull, Travis? What is what is this stunting that Father Paul pulls in this moment? It's it's really quite something. And I do enjoy that everyone finds it uniformly offensive when he does it. That's one of my favorite parts of the show. They're just like, screw you, dude. So it's time for Lisa to take the sacrament. And instead of offering it to her like a normal human would do to someone who is wheelchair bound, instead he walks backward up the steps to the altar and says, come on, come get it. Uh, which, you know, I don't know if you've tried to manage stairs in a wheelchair before, but it's not it's not a nice thing to ask someone to do to put it to put it one way. So this goes on and he says, no, really, come on. And he challenges her to get up out of her wheelchair. And it's it's we are suddenly transported into a televangelist scene, right? Like that's oh, yeah. that's yeah. what we're referencing here. That's what's supposed to occur. It's this like 1980s televangelist vision of what Christianity, like real Christianity is supposed to be, which feels very not Catholic. It's it's interesting. There's a lot about this show that does not feel very Catholic. <laughs> and there's a lot that does. It's, so it's an interesting yeah. mix, I think. Yeah. Like chasuble yeah. colors come up, which we need to talk about. But yeah, uh, so she she does it. She gets up and she's, she's healed. And she's, you know, a little weak on her feet, but she can manage even the steps. So that's a thing that happens and everyone's eyebrows are raised and miracles are starting to occur all around town, Klaus. So what happens with Annabeth's mother, Mildred? What happens with her? So right, Dr. Annabeth Gish, her mother, as we mentioned, is under her care. So Annabeth Gish is running 
what I guess is a general practice. Oh yeah, or... that's also just like, it's like the school. It's like, there's one doctor whose office is connected to her house. It's the same building and there's an exam room and there's an ultrasound. I'm like, no, like all of this is wrong, but okay. Well, you bring that up. This, what, I, what came to my mind was that she's actually able to like be successfully queer dating on this island of oh, queer yeah. people. Like, she's got that. You know, yeah, it's no problem for <laughs> so, her. Like, I don't know if you have yeah. friends on the apps, but like, it's uh, usually not that successful. But you know, good, yeah, good on Doctor Gish. Yeah. I mean, she's yeah, she's a nice she's, looking she's lady. A, she's a lady killer. She's yeah, a lady killer. Uh, she's very attractive. She's a doctor. I mean, you know, for those of us dating doctors yeah. out there, it is you know, it's attractive. I get it. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> to give nothing to give nothing away. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so Mildred, Annabeth Gish's mother, mm-hmm. starts getting some visits from father paul and what does he, he what does he do what does he do with her klaus he's doing his mini masses he's coming and he's he's giving her the giving her communion um and she's not walking out of a wheelchair but gosh darn she ends up looking about the same age as her daughter pretty quickly after taking these these elements it's magic. W-T-F. Blood is magic. What's going yeah. on? What's going yeah. on here? Okay, so the main plot points run along two roughly parallel ritual axes. There are AA meetings, uh, which do feel like what a tiny island AA meeting would feel like. Two people and then Respect. eventually three. Respect. Right? Yeah, yeah, they do that well. Yeah. Uh, so there are these AA meetings that Riley Saracen <laughs> attends with Father Paul, <laughs> along with a local ne'er-do-well called Joe Colley. And this is the guy who uh, put Lisa in the wheelchair. Apparently, he was just shooting his gun. It's not a lot of detail. Yeah, it's like, I feel like Joe Colley shooting a gun. You know, like, yeah. He was shooting just to shoot, I believe is the quote. And I, I did find that just unnecessarily uh, unreasonable and unlikely. Like, what if he it were reminded me. It reminded me of the, of the Christopher Nolan Batman line, some men just want to see the world burn. That kind of that kind of yeah kind of it's yeah. about that level so the other parallel ritual axis here is the lenten church season and both ritual processes climax in you guessed it it is you know a horror-ish series after all bloody violence so klaus yeah, what's yeah, the what's the yeah. problem here what's the problem would you say? Well, the, there are multiple problems with the show. <laughs> um, the, the main problem explaining all the bloodletting is uh, delivered in one giant bit of exposition in like episode three or something um, of a seven part series. So the big problem is that we thought that Father Paul was the substitute, the, you know, the JV quarterback, if you will, of the local crockpot Catholic clergy. But in fact, he was the starting QB the whole time. Uh, he what? was Monsignor Pruitt. Yeah, <laughs> go figure. So Monsignor Pruitt is ancient in the show. Um, and he finally gets his trip to his pilgrimage to the Holy Land. But he's a little confused. He's at the, the Wailing Wall. He gets He gets upset. He goes like venturing into the desert during a sandstorm stumbles upon some sort of cave or tomb or site of where the Essenes with the Dead Sea Scroll community, you know, yep. were sort of doing their baptisms yep. or whatever. That is, killing what, demons. that is what he found. Yeah. So he, he, we're seeing what happens. And when we see what happens, it looks like we see some scary eyes. And this is one of the best parts about the show. They have some cool, scary eye effects. Um, but so he sees some scary eyes in this tomb. And we're like, and everyone watching is like, this guy is toast. Yeah, man. this is over. He's um, definitely gonna die. <laughs> this dude is done. Um, f- f- man, fooey on us. But uh, so yeah, uh, he he would he would live to cause many more problems. Um, but yeah, so he sees the eyes, and this giant bat-winged vampire-looking thing pops out, drinks all of his blood, and then starts feeding him his own blood back question mark like the the vampire is just like i take from you then i give back to you you know it's like a very symbiotic relationship um and so uh at the end of this he is very young and he's like well i guess i need to bring my blood-sucking freak friend back home with me so i can make everyone else young in the crock pot because you know there's there's mildred you know, she's old. 
uh, there's other old people mm. and maybe this whole church needs to be rejuvenated just like I've been rejuvenated. Now I'm like a quasi television evangelist, like uh, barking on the pulpit instead of sort of just like boringly mumbling my homily. Like I'm like, I'm a, I'm reborn, you know? So, yeah. So like I said, it's a vampire. We were talking about this. Like there's a lot of ways in which what's going on in the show never gets a name. Like what did what did, like so he, he Pruitt keeps calling this thing that attacks him slash saves him as an angel. What what did you what kind of sense should we make of like this idea that this thing is an angel? It has wings, you know. I mean, it has wings. It's scary as hell, and that's actually referenced in I think a pretty biblical biblically literate way, which is to say that almost every appearance of an angel is accompanied by the the first spoken words of the angel are are almost always do not be afraid or some version of mm -hmm. that so i think it's not a leap to assume if you think those are you know a true accounts in some sense that angels look scary as hell and that is what you see here so that is you know we haven't introduced bev yet who is like one of my favorites but bev the church the mean church lady is probably enough for now Bev, the mean church lady who knows her Bible, I believe it's in a scene with her where that's mentioned. Oh, yeah. That yeah, angels yeah. are terrifying looking. And we know this from the good book, right? So, yeah, we don't name what this thing is. What to make of that? There's a lot of not naming that goes on here. But in this particular instance, I think it helps preserve what the shortcuts would be, which are vampire would be one way to describe the being. Um angel i suppose but that's the weirdest one and that's the one that gets spoken i would say that's the only thing that's spoken right. I, I guess and you would say like fallen angel i would say demon, demon right? or or the devil i mean how many fallen angel names do we know it's you know well it depends there are, there are i suppose a bunch but the first one that comes to mind would be lucifer right mm. um so that is that was my first thought when i mean i guess yeah. i i do co-host this podcast so there's that but i definitely when i first saw this thing and heard angel especially when i heard angel i was like oh this is not an angel of light y'all <laughs> like or not well, and anymore that's, that's, and 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 i mean maybe we're skipping ahead a little bit but like i do think that this is like the this show does sort of come off as like a very intense critique of the church and an intense critique of christianity but of course, it's like physician heal thyself. I mean, it is the most Christian thing ever. This mm -hmm. is like Pauline words, like, yeah. you know, the angel of light that's seducing the church. This is like the most Christian scripted thing ever. This is like what the reformers thought about the papacy, that this is like a fake church. This is church controlled by demons. This show just really literalizes that. Like we even have this thing in in robes and a chasuble at some point, yeah. right? Which is terrifying like it actually is a scary part of the show when this thing's like it's time for easter mass yeah here's the uh evil demon vampire uh deacon here to help you with your uh, bloodletting communion um it's scary yeah um yeah for sure uh the other scary thing i thought and for me this was a callback to an earlier vampire franchise was you see i think in the first episode you see um father paul slash father uh, John Pruitt, uh, like dragging this trunk around, bringing it into his 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 domicile, and kind of like knocking on the top of it as like a signal, and the thing knocks back from inside. And I thought that was creepy, and it reminded me a lot of Stephen King's Salem's Lot, which has a great made-for-TV movie from the '70s that's also pretty creepy. And I think this show borrows a lot from with the appearance of the vampire non-vampire thing looks a lot like that though the the vampire in salem's lot barlow does not have wings they have a similar physiognomy mm -hmm. uh if you will um but yeah the, in in salem's lot there's a famous famous for, for me anyway uh scene where this giant box that the vampire is being transported in is like sort of is is in this truck and these guys are drive dropping it off in an abandoned mansion ruined mansion and the box keeps like sliding towards them in the truck and they're getting freaked out because it's like really cold. And they're just like, I got a bad feeling about this. Um, the show didn't play it up quite that much, but this idea of like some guy lugging around an ominously sized, like sort of humanoid sized uh, crate. Um, to me, that was, um, that was some Salem's lot action huh. right there. That's cool. I 
I just got the mild creeps from it, having not seen Salem's Lot. But yeah, I was like, huh, what did, is that your... What are you bringing with you, Father? What do you What do you bring home here? It's also It's also like Sam's Lot in that there's a lot of like window action. So like that there's that scary part um, with uh, Sheriff Hassan where he's talking to his son. This is one of the subplots of the show. The so like like one of the major cringe moments of the show is the way it virtue signals, um, and like so the sh- everyone on this island is white. A hundred people there are white. But they're like, we need to have some brown or black people on this show. It's not 100% white. There are, there are black people or, and mixed race people. Not very many. But then they're like, okay, it's a, this show is all about Christianity. But like, the sheriff's got to be Muslim. Um, and so there's, yeah. a, there's, a, there's a cool scene. And, and so the sheriff's got to be Muslim. There's all these crazy miracles happening at the church. And so his son Ali's like, Oh, like this Christianity thing starting to make sense. Oh, it was, it was, it's hard to so watch. So painful, um, so painful. Yes. So anyway, you see the face of this blood sucking freak uh, angel in the window in one of the episodes, and it's actually, it's a good jump scare. It's, it's, it's actually a little, it's pretty creepy. Yeah. Um, as I spoil the hell out of it. Um, <laughs> but yeah. Right. So I mentioned the virtue signaling by like, okay, we need to have the sheriff. Uh, in TV, the police are usually the protagonists. Uh, I've been like working on a research project on police and TV, so it's like the, the sort of sacred moral authority of police on television and series programming is like really like drummed into my brain. So of course he's a good guy. And part of the virtue signaling is that uh, the evil church lady who you mentioned before, Bev, she's my favorite. Oh, you're- She's yeah. my favorite so in the show. Bev, by far. Bev is uh, is uh, Sheriff Hassan's chief antagonist. She's one of the chief antagonists, and the show sort of makes her the, the biggest villain. She's almost a bigger villain than the vampire. Oh for yeah, I for mean, sure. Like, yeah, uh, of course, right. Um, but anyway, we have this opposition between uh, Sheriff Hassan and Bev, and Bev is uh, Bev apparently also like uh, like Matt Saracen's girlfriend teaches at the high school and is like passing out bibles so it's embarrassing. not the most catholic thing to be doing no ever, I guess, no you know? it's <laughs> not it's very weird yeah it, that part really doesn't fit but yeah she becomes in that moment this like protestant church lady but sure fine um so she's yeah yeah bible thumping like mm-hmm. oh like the children have to know something so i'll, I'll be passing out this book in in public school and somehow the, the worst part about us is that it works on a, on the sheriff's son, the sheriff's son's like, yeah, like, yeah, these 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 guys have a lot of things going for them. Um, so yeah. Anyway, well, clearly he didn't start reading the Bible, so there's that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, right. If you start reading it, like, I mean, I say this as a Christian. Like, I find that without without like some context and a community to interpret it with, and a good one at that, the Bible is terrifying, especially if you start from the beginning. So. Yeah. Oh, well. For sure. Anyway. For sure. So, but like, busybody, evil church lady, Bev, she's not just, like, one of her chief characteristics is that she recognizes that Father Paul is going through some vampiric shit, and she's like, let's roll with this. Yeah. She she realizes he's, he's Monsignor Pruitt. She's like, oh, he's young. This is, he's gotten good at preaching again. People are coming to church. I don't care if he's a vampire. That's fine. This is, this is what the resurrection means. This is what it means to have a spiritual body. I'm going to roll with this guy. I'm going to support him. Even when he gets too squeamish, I'm going to be there to be pushing the vampire church revival agenda all the way to the hilt. And of course, she's also like a committed Islamophobe. So that's like her whole, her right. whole dynamic Obviously. with the sheriff, right? Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, so like, you pointed this out. Like, she's just, like, she's just waiting to spring with her Islamophobia. Like, what, were, what was the scene you were thinking of with this? Oh, yeah. So this is toward the very end of the, of the series. Um, when the sheriff, in a bid, so this gets complicated, this part of the plot, but the, the town is now infested with vampires, uh, Thanks that, to the worst Easter vigil mass of all time. Yeah, which was like a slaughter. I suppose we should explain that. But you, you know, 
you should watch the show to see how it how it comes about. But basically, the angel shows up in his church robes and then turns everyone into like they all die. But if they've taken the Eucharist using his blood, which we have not talked about yet, um, then they can be resurrected and then they are resurrected as vampires and have a thirst for blood. And so there's this right. bloodbath that's and it's not just his blood. It's not just his blood because they have to drink the the rat poison that church lady Bev is like pouring around around town to like kill that's, dogs she doesn't like and that's, stuff. Right? I thought that was just to kill them. They drink the poison, they yes. die, and then um, so it, but they can die by other means because Bev herself is shot and then she's resurrected as a vampire without having drunk the poison. Yeah, it's true. Uh, the point is is that the miracles that have been happening are because. Uh, Father Paul has been go. like, oh, I have this great friend. He's a great bat-winged friend. And sometimes he comes and when my, when the, the Eucharistic wine is out, he just opens his vein and puts his blood in there. Wait. And then the people drink it and they're healed. That's <laughs> why everybody's getting healed because of this magic angel, angel slash demon blood. Slash. But you're right. Just drinking the blood seems to kind of just help you. Yeah. But if you die... And hence the rat poison. If you die and you have the angel blood, mm-hmm. then you are a bona fide Nosferatu person. Yeah. There's a really weird scene with um, Dr. Gish that tries yeah. to sort of medically explain how all this comes about. It's not particularly <laughs> interesting or convincing, but that's where that gets, you know, there's an attempt to explain that. Yeah. Yeah. So we've got this this vampire scene and then uh, the vampires, dawn is coming and the vampires need to find shelter. But in a strange series of events, plot twists, it is decided by Bev, of course, that the whole town should burn. Um, and so the only shelters remaining, she would then control who gets to be in and who's out, sheep and goats, the good vampires. Her, her total fantasy, right? Exactly. She gets to decide who's saved she, and who's damned. She's God, yeah. essentially. So yeah. she's sitting in judgment, which was her goal this entire time. Like her life's dream is, is that judgment of others. So, <laughs> so Sheriff Hassan, in his, um, who has not become a vampire, in his martyrdom moment, um, He's been injured. He tries to burn down uh, the church parish hall. And at that point, he's dousing it with gasoline. And he's discovered. And Bev, at that point, the sheer joy on her face as she calls the sheriff, who is a Muslim, a terrorist, is one of the most cringeworthy uh, virtue signaling moments of the entire show. Worth pointing out. Yeah, but and she just goes for it. And and like she goes from being like patronizing, "Oh, you can't understand why it's so good why I'm giving your son this Bible in school" to like you're a terrorist. Uh, and I got to say, this point about his status with respect to the Patriot Act is really gets us to one of the major weaknesses of this show, which is the dialogue. Oh, let's man. be clear. Let's yeah. be clear. Yeah. Let's be clear. That's hard. So so people talk in about 3,000 word chunks which to the uninitiated is like 10 pages at a time. Uh, and, and like, so there's one point at which, um, which let's get her name correctly. I'm sorry. We're, we're going to edit this part. Uh, Aaron Green, the uh, erstwhile girlfriend of Matt Saracen, um, has to report him missing for a part of the plot that I don't know if I'll spoil because it's actually good. Um, he goes missing. Uh, it's one of the few really sort of strong plot points, I thought. Hmm. Um, and so she's at the sheriff's office, and the sheriff's office is at the back of a convenience store. Like, it's the Wild West or the something. The general store. They have a general store, and it's at the back of the general store. I'm like, y'all, I, it just, it's just so weird, this world you're trying to create. Oh, well. Yes, that is where his office is. Yes. So she's like, I have a theory about vampires. And he's like, you got vampires? You think you've got problems? Let me tell you about my problems. And we go from, it's like, we go from like, okay, you've got a person missing to report. Well, let me tell you about my story. I, the Twin Towers came down and my decision was to join the NYPD. And that didn't go well. And so that's why I'm here. And like, we're like, okay, like, that's... <laughs> Again, cringeworthy virtue signaling about how policing the U.S. is about like uh, 
horrible racialized minoritized politics but like the the writers just shoved this in here for like no reason oh it's so so strange and it's also there's no self-awareness in this script about how these forces they're complaining about are shaping why you have to make sheriff hassan the sheriff and also like having signed up to join the nypd at 9-11 right there's no consciousness of that it's like he's like here's my backstory you're talking about vampires I'm talking about the Patriot Act, and we're going to meet in the middle somewhere. Somewhere we're going to find our right. way in this so, this thicket of plot points mm-hmm. to a convergence point. Right the now. lesbian and no, the Muslim don't. are going to solve this real quick, right? You're just yeah. like, oh, please, please, no, don't yeah. do this. Yeah. But that's what we do right. in that moment. Yeah, right. and the the speeches, there were it was that was actually the biggest challenge I think to watching the series were the um. Matt Saracen and Aaron Green conversations about, you know, deep thoughts about when you die. That was very long. So many deep thoughts. So, so many, many deep so thoughts. The deepest. Oof. Profound. Wow. Profundity. Yeah. Profundity. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was, that was some, uh, uh, so like we're sort of listing off things that were like just total, total like tripping down the stairs moments of the show with like a backpack full of pans. Like, uh, another moment. So the show does achieve a level of creepiness and atmospheric uh, doom in certain moments. There's a moment when they try to overextend and fail. And we were texting while watching the show. And I was thinking of one of my favorite hardcore bands, MDC. And the genius at MDC is that they use this to stand, they use this acronym to stand in for all kinds of things. Millions of dead cops, millions of dead Christians, but for the purposes of Midnight Mass, we got to millions of dead cats. Uh, <laughs> I mean, was so, it millions or was it 1600, which MDC, you know, if you think Roman numerals, that anyway. Whatever. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For, for sure. For sure. You're for welcome, sure. Yeah, you're welcome. Everyone. So, Travis, can you help us? Ex- can you help explain why a million dead cats washed up on the beach of the crockpot? What yeah. happened? Um. I mean, the short answer is no, I can't. But here's what I tried to piece together as my brain was desperately trying to create a recognizable storyline for the show was that our our angel, let's call him an angel, who has been, you know, transported in his coffin from the Holy Land, he's hungry. And there's there's an area where everyone goes to, you know, make out and smoke weed like every town has. That seemed fine. I kind of liked that part, that sort of atmospheric part of that. Um, that had a creepy part with the eyes with the, the yeah, angel that I that liked. That was good. Yeah. Um, but the angel is hanging out on this island of feral cats where people go to have sex and smoke weed. And he's feeding on the cats? Why? Why? Like, I don't understand. I, I mean, like, time out. As if this thing weren't, like, a few millennia years old. Like... It needs to warm up with the cats. Please. Come on. This is BS, man. Right. This thing is, this is, this is not the first rodeo uh-uh. here. Matt no. Saracen. And also, you know, he, you know, if you tried to supply that, oh, well, you know, at Monsignor Pruitt's suggestion or, or begging that he would somehow control his lust for human blood. I don't buy that because it's so clear that he, sh- that the angel shows up when he wants to and is not at the yeah. beck and, and call of of our priest. So I just, um, other than we need to have a creepy moment that warms us up to true vampireness, I just don't have a rationale and for it, the dead cats. It was not creepy either at all. It fallen on the face. No. Like total failure. No. And it reminded me uh, of this, this uh, found footage Japanese horror movie, Noroi the Curse, where um, there's a lot of dogs in this town because they use the dogs for, uh, for sorcery basically hmm. and so you're used to the dogs being there and suddenly the dogs are all gone and it's creepy as f and i'm like is this what they're going for oh. uh but hmm. but like i don't know like mass animal death i guess is kind of becoming a horror trope uh but like it yeah i get just to sort of mirror like uh the sort of uh, eco side that the human race continues to perpetuate on a daily basis. Um, yeah, but because there were pets, mass extinction events, it felt yeah. it felt different because there were pets. And but I think pet deaths only work um, for pathos when 
they're someone, someone's individual pet, which does happen with Joe, right? Our town ne'er-do-well, his dog dies, and that feels like something sad that's happened. We aren't particularly attached to this dog, but it like makes some sense in terms of the emotional arc we're supposed to be having, whereas the dead cats just seem sort of out of nowhere and unhelpful. I like That's good to bring up because Joe, town ne'er-do-well, um, I guess he's supposed to be like sort of the tragic figure in that he's the town drunk, he his dog like uh, 10 minutes after millions of dead cats on the beach the dog is poisoned apparently by bev for no reason you know um it's unclear unless unless the vampire did it well she needs to be Um, a villain how do you paint a what is like it's someone who doesn't like dogs or babies like that's how you make a villain klaus it's in the textbook that's funny because uh what, this is this is the genius of the Sopranos is that Tony Soprano loves babies and loves small animals and he's a show, sociopath. Um, so it's also an award-winning uh, yeah. show that you are comparing to, you know. Yeah, well, you know, I just, have to go I, I just I just subjected myself to uh, the Many Saints of Newark, which is the the movie version of of Sopranos, the movie prequel to Sopranos, which was not as good as the as the series. But okay, yeah, fair um, enough. That's, a, that's another that's a tale for another time. Um, yeah. Uh, I do like that we we go back to Joe because like Joe is hanging out with Matt Saracen Riley. He's doing these three way Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. He's getting better. He's not drinking. He's like starting to figure it out. And then Father Paul's to like rip his scalp off and drink his blood. Like you know, like it, it, it's like <laughs> it ends pretty badly. It does. It's like oh yeah, moral progress not possible here in the crockpot mm-hmm. or the Catholic Church. Um, right, which gets us to talking about what is the show really about, right? Yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah, so I think, you know, you've suggested before that perhaps we are, as we see, you know, the monster in in the church vestments, that perhaps if we're looking around for a uh, an analog in our society, that the sexual abuse sc- scandal is certainly near to yeah. hand. So we could read it that way. And I think, you know, monstrous predatory priests, that that works. Checks out. It checks yeah, out. Checks like out. that's that's what's real. I mean, having taught in a Catholic uni- in two Catholic universities before, um, and heard and heard stories from these students about their feelings about Catholicism now that are so heavily covered by I mean, these students, you know, the the I was teaching people who had been born in the year two thousand and afterward. And so this was just part of their growing up this was part of the yeah. church always in their memories right this was always yeah. part of it so yeah. so i think that that certainly works it's a little bit flat i would say like there's nothing there's nothing terribly interesting yeah. about this critique i mean who doesn't know that molesting children is evil right it, and it needs to be said and there are ways to do that and there are expressions of it but i just um if that was supposed to be the kind of a vehicle for that i don't think i don't think we fully got there yeah, and I think, I think it's if if anything, there's a lot. It's sort of um, a mass soft target allegorical uh, assault mm-hmm. because right, we have the Catholic Church, and like frankly, even though the show is trying to play up these Catholic bona fides, um, you know, this basically applies to most Christian denominations in terms of clergy dynamics with people. Um, Father Pruitt comes off as this kind of charismatic preacher, more than a Catholic priest. Like, I don't know. I mean, I only have my own uh, very conservative Southeast Pennsylvania experiences with uh, PA Dutch Catholicism to fall back on. But man, like, I never saw a priest talk like this on the the altar. Um, Yeah. I mean, of course, there are charismatic branches of Catholicism. Of course. uh, Brought to light most most recently with Amy Coney Barrett's, you know, appointment to the Supreme Court. People of praise, baby. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder wonder how this show spoke to her. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I was wondering. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So that, that element exists, but it certainly felt heavily influenced by... Um, evangelical Christianity in general, I would say the preaching style and the the fervor that that 
brings the whole town in and, you know, conversions almost. We didn't see people converting, yeah. but people showing up to the church who were well, from We had the, the sheriff's we son, one, Ali, famous. converting. We did. I stand corrected. He's the you second right. one to die at the Easter Vigil oh. Mass. He's like, I'm drinking this rat poison and vampire blood. Hallelujah. Christ is risen. Right. I'm a blood-sucking freak right now. And how yes, ready Bev it. was for that moment was also, was probably one of my favorite character moments for Bev. <laughs> you know, she's like ready. She's like a deeply, profoundly racist woman, Islamophobic woman who's ready to show triumphalist, in a triumphalist manner, how Christianity is better through the conversion of Ali, her instrument right like to call back neither, to neither jew nor greek travis yeah i know <laughs> but to call back to your instrumentality discussion from the solo the recent solo episode which was excellent by the way oh thank you so where are we yeah um what is the I meaning of this say, show was, for you i was gonna say yeah i think the other meaning so like i was saying that there's multiple soft targets yeah f- for allegory mm-hmm. in this i think there is also it's about the u.s in general i think like i think there's a way of looking at this of like the whole um president 45 make america great again keep america like this idea of rejuvenation because so much of the point so much of the imagery is about like you drink the demon blood and you were old and you were a has-been and now you're back to your best self um which links to these fantasies about what heaven would be like like you're going to be your best self in heaven but it also links to this idea of like we're living in an empire that's past its best days. And by best, I mean most effectively murderous um, and, and most adept at interfering in the politics of other countries and dominating them. Um, and so I, I think that, you know, if you if you'll, ex- if you'll excuse my sort of uh, overreach here with the allegory, Crockett Island, I'm like thinking like Davy Crockett. We got Matt Saracen here as a QB from Texas. We got Davy Crockett. Remember the Alamo? We have these like American mythic types here um, with like the sort of the noble white working class fisherman type, um, which I think is supposed to make this New England, though. These people do not seem like New Englanders to me. But yeah, um, having having a bit of experience with that. Uh, yeah, and, uh, <laughs> it doesn't work at all yeah. for New England. That doesn't but, work at all. But it wants to be. It's like someone from California was like, who has never spent any time there was trying to imagine it. It's just, yeah. He, Flanagan, Flanagan grew up in Salem, Massachusetts, but then he, then he moved to Maryland and maybe that screwed the whole thing up. But no. like, I don't know. He, he has the, he, he has the, the bona fides for that, but yeah. yeah. Um, he, and he counts Salem as part of his, his horror influence. Um, so I don't know, man. Maybe, maybe it, maybe it ended up more Maryland then we got to give him credit though at least he didn't at least he didn't bring in some like he's like man i gotta go i gotta go authentic i need a Wahlberg. i need an affleck (laughs) how bad would that you you know he probably approached them i didn't say it but i i am sure that you know there were several rejections you know we don't know about the cast i just keep thinking about the departed with vampires and priests and, and and this is and and that casey affleck movie you know like this is what we got like Okay, so what about this This show's sort of speaking to the church, perhaps more broadly beyond the question of the Catholic Church's um, uh, sexual abuse scandal? You have said that you read this as a bitter rejection of Christianity, um, and I... It's very... Ironically, ironically, because it's so Christian. Right, right yeah. ironically, because it's so Christian. So thinking more broadly about this show as a sort of ironic, bitter rejection of Christianity, then you've got the church as run by vampires, right? These monsters that what's at the heart of this religion is not what it professes to be, this sort of religion of self-sacrificial love and community, but is instead about taking things from people, about um, converting them to what is at heart a, an enterprise that's all about power and judgment of others and selfishness. Um, some of my favorite images that were organized around this critique of the church, uh, namely that, well, first of all, I have to say, I love that the word chasuble comes up, even though they say chasuble, which I find very weird, but they're going for the chowder, the chasuble. I don't know. I don't know know either, but like liturgical colors are discussed. Um, and I thought I was going to, I thought they were just going, it was a mistake at the beginning when they first start, when he came in, in a, in a white, uh, chasuble 
And I was like, it isn't Easter. Like, I'm like, what is this supposed to be? And it was ordinary time because they'd already discussed it was ordinary time. I really enjoyed those moments. But then that comes roaring back when you have our angel or demon who shows up at church with his creepy eyes. That was a great image. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he's wearing his vestments and the white um, for Easter appropriately for resurrection, right? Um, but this like horrific uh, caricature. Where did they get the it. vestment that fit this guy? Because he's like eight feet tall. There's that. Yeah, I was just saying, like, as someone who is um, a church lady who has recently joined an altar guild, I will say that some ladies were sewing very late at night to make that. And so let's just thank them for their their efforts. Yeah, that's some sacrifice. Uh, we're talking it about really sacrifice is. to the cross. These ladies are sewing for an eight foot blood sucking freak uh, who is and probably going to kill know. them like, before they know it. Yeah. How did how did that convo go? Like, oh yeah, I need you. Um, so I have a friend priest who's coming in, and he's eight feet tall. So could you just make there has a bit to be bigger, gaps like, in the chasuble for the wings to pick to point out you for know, the wings yeah. to come through. So that's fine, right? Um, anyway, okay, great. So how do we connect um, some of what we've seen here with some of the important themes of the show? Um, first of all. I want to. I do want to talk about the devil, I guess, and um, thinking about this angel who's never named as demonic. As what if we imagine him as the devil, um, or perhaps maybe more aptly an antichrist kind of. I figure. would say antichrist for sure. Yeah, because he is the herald of the end times, um, and Revelation comes into play. In fact, each episode is named for a book of the Bible. Very, very clunkily, the- I would add. Very clunkily, unfortunately, but yeah. Um, but we do have this, this is the end of the world. That's what justifies the inferno at the end, that this consummation of the world of all things will, will take place. And Bev is quoting from Revelation to justify what's going on around her, right? So an Antichrist kind of figure, um, a really screwy resurrection. Perhaps that's one way to read the show and to think about how the show relates to what we've been talking about for a while. Um, what else would you say, Klaus? What do you think? For me, yeah, I think going back to like apocalyptic paradigms that aren't just Christian, uh, but that the Christian uh, apocalyptic imagination takes its departure from, the idea of the desecrating abomination in the sanctuary, which refers to right Antiochus's desecration of the Temple of Jerusalem, we get right. a desecration of the sanctuary in the person of this uh, this bat-faced member, sort of a renegade member of the clergy who has come to completely pollute and foul and destroy the true meaning of an Easter vigil service um, by feeding people rat poison and sucking their blood and killing them. Uh, so I, for yeah, 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 for sure. That's mine. What about? What about at the end, one of my favorite moments, Bev moments, because like hashtag, I, I'm like a, a stan. I'm standing she's Bev, a, and She's so. a kind of the real antichrist too, I got to say too. But yeah. She's amazing. Um, at, the, at the end, when Monsignor Pruitt is like, you know what, I'm done with all of this. This is this has gone on for too long. This is all evil and wrong. We've, we've been leading these people astray. Bev's like, oh no. And she says, get behind me. And she doesn't actually say Satan because no one can ever say any of these things in this show for some reason. But she says, get behind me. And in that moment, we have this, uh, this theme that we've seen many times before, this like easy shift between the angelic and the demonic, between good and evil that uh, animates so many of the theological, of the theological history we've been talking about, how these things are so weirdly close at times, or how you can, um, uh, from different perspectives, for example, when we talk about heresy, how that flipping is so, is so in the end, characteristic of Christianity rather than truly surprising. Yeah, and we saw that with with Origen and Tertullian, these pillars mm-hmm. of Christian theology can flip into heterodoxy, like with the flip of a wrist, right? Um, yeah, for sure. I think this point, and it's so it's so glaring that she doesn't say, get behind me, Satan. When she confronts him, she's like, get behind me. Again, the way that we can't say, well... This looks like a vampire, folks. Um, (laughs) The the word vampire never appears once in the show. Bev goes out of her way not to say Satan 
in the confrontation with Father Pruitt, Monsignor Pruitt, when he's like, oh, maybe this was a bad idea. Because that's the weird thing about Father Pruitt. He thought he was doing this all with the best, he was doing this all with the best of intentions, as crazy as that sounds. Um, he's like, yeah, vampire blood in the communal wine. This is all for the best. This is this is the common wheel. Um, but like the, the fact that she can't say Satan to uh because because for from her perspective Pruitt is almost doing an antichrist thing in that he has been the holy leader of this whole movement and now he's bailing and she's like well that's you have just totally reversed your polarity i feel like the fact that she can't say satan the show can't say vampire or demon does pull me towards this kind of allegorical reading about what about what uh churches and institutions of power can't say about themselves, whether that's deep-seated corruption, whether that's sexual abuse, whether that's thoroughgoing corruption with moneyed capital interests with uh, the way uh, lobbying works in our government. It's this inability to say what's really going on. It's keeping the quiet part quiet. And I think that's, you know, if if, if the show can be accused of any kind of subtlety, it would be with the way it, it goes out of its way to not say the name of evil at any point. And that is the most interesting interpretation possible for not saying all of these things. Another one that seems more readily available perhaps would be that by naming it, we've tied this beautiful work down to a single interpretation, Klaus, and we want to leave it open as to how how our readers, how our, how our um, audience will. I know it's a rich thing. tapestry. The the midnight Such mass. A rich tapestry. <laughs> mm. Either that, or if at any point people started saying the word vampire, someone would start laughing. That's the problem: is that if you try to describe this plot to someone, as we have done in bits and spurts throughout this episode, you can't keep a straight face. At a certain point, you're like this vampire angel demon. Uh, and then they drink the blood. It's the Eucharist, but it's literal. And then resurrection happens, but then they become vampires, but it's Christian. You're reminding I mean, me of a classic line from Steven Spielberg's Jaws. Maybe you've heard of it. Uh, where the mayor <laughs> of, of Amity's like, you say piranha or barracuda. People are like, huh? What? You say shark. And we have a panic on our hands on the 4th of July. <laughs> Um, well, as Hermione Granger once said, Klaus, fear of the name only increases fear of the thing itself. So you should say Voldemort. Anyway, <laughs> on that note. Um, Mic drop moment. <laughs> I think we're done I think, here. Yeah, I, think, uh, I think we cracked the code. Um, yeah, I guess watch Midnight Mass if you feel like it after that. Uh, after, you know, after all this and uh, on, on yeah. Netflix, they should they'll, they'll be they'll be sending the truck with a million dollars for us each after we. After we drop this episode, it's just a yeah, matter of days. For yeah, sure. We'll be good. Um, but more importantly, come join us again for our Halloween special, which is dropping later this month. And uh, thanks for listening. See you next time. This pod is made possible by support from the Satanic Horde, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners like you. Thank you.